Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 526, FOMO Generator. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am vertical and so proud of myself because last night we had our Thursday night book chat such as it was without a whole lot of books, but it was a lot of fun. It was good to see everybody. We had some new people there and I'm so sorry you had to leave before you got to share your books. Come next week. Let me know a little early that you have to leave and then I can like cut to the chase and and switch over to you. So that was number one. Number two, I'm proud of myself for being vertical because I, I got off that call, did some work on today's episode and then went to sleep for a few hours, then got up at three to watch Hamilton, hashtag Hamilfilm, and woke the boys up because that's what they wanted, and then made hot chocolate and popcorn, and then went back and woke the boys up again, at which point it was clear that I was going to be watching Solo, and all the hot chocolate and popcorn were for me. And that was fine. I did some crochet... I watched Hamilton. I was awestruck at the quality of the editing because, my good grief, they had they had a dumpster load of cameras that they were using. Uh, plus, they I know they they came in on a uh, Monday when the theater was closed and did pick up shots on stage with a Steadicam, which I gotta tell you is pretty cool. You are in people's faces several times. And and hits. (laughs) Dude, Leslie Odom Jr. is incredible. I mean, I knew he was great. His voice is beautiful. He could sing the phone book. It would be fine. Fine. He's also a really good actor. That Carnegie Mellon School puts out good actors. He's extraordinary. And Lin-Manuel, it totally busts out crying at one part in the show, which I don't blame him. It's a hard, hard part of the show to watch. And I said this to the, bo- the Thursday night book chat uh, a week ago, that Eliza, the whole, the whole end of the show rests on Eliza Hamilton, his wife, who had an extraordinary wife. And for the entire show, the focus is, as one might expect, on Alexander Hamilton. That last four minutes is all about her, and their marriage makes a lot more sense. At that point, she's worth a book or 17. It would take a few books to write down everything she did. So uh, get a box of Kleenex, get a trial Disney Plus subscription, (laughs) sit down with the Kleenex and the popcorn and hot chocolate and have a great time. Or rum. I suppose rum would be period appropriate. Don't feel the need to wear a petticoat or anything like that. They change time periods so often. The women's clothes go through those time period changes. So by the end 
Eliza looks like she walks out of a Jane Austen movie. She's wearing her her Empire waist muslin dress. It's lovely. The costumes are beautiful, spectacular. So, so there's my plug for the Hamill film. And yeah, I nothing. I have some great links out to things that people talked about last night. Some of them are books. <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff in there that I've linked out to though. Things to binge on, things to watch, the fact that Amazon Prime is now doing watch parties. So I may try and set that up for watching a series or an episode or two. I don't know. We'll see how things go. The world continues to be weird. So I'll just keep following it, I guess, into the into the weirdness. But we have chapter 17 today. So we have more Helen. And it's it's kind of a critical time. It's an important time for Helen. And we have two voicemails that will help kick us off. All right. Our first voicemail this week is from Kelly, a new attendee to our Thursday night book chats, to which you are all invited cordially. Information in links at craftlit.com slash 526 or in the Facebook annotated audiobooks group thing. Yes, group. So here we go with a message from Kelly. Hi, Heather. This is Kelly. I was at the uh, Thursday book chat, not last week, but the week before. Um, sorry I missed last week. I actually ended up in the hospital again, but I'm at home now and uh, doing okay. Um, so I just listened to uh, the last two episodes, and I'm really, really excited to be hearing Helen's side of things. Uh, my friend and I have a bet going about how Helen and uh, Mr. Lawrence know each other. I think they're brother and sister, but we'll see what happens. And um, uh, Helen's aunt, I really agree, I agree that a lot of her advice is wise, but I'm really bothered by her attitude of, you know, really not liking someone is not an excuse for not giving them a chance romantically. Sadly, I think there are still people in the world that have that view, but I, I'm really having a hard time being as big of a fan of her as it sounds like you are based on, you know, some of what she says to Helen. But anyway, I'm really excited to hear more. And I, was, I also wanted to say a little bit about uh, at the end, at the beginning of the uh, episode before last, you mentioned the uh, five, apparently now seven, stages of grief. Um, interesting tidbit about that. I get up on my psychology soapbox a little bit here, but the five stages of grief were originally developed specifically about people grieving knowledge of their own death, not just grief in general. Um, I think they've since been adapted, but um, it's interesting because I'm, in particular, I think bargaining kind of applies best to situations that are ongoing or that, you know, haven't happened yet. I think some of what's in the book is actually a really good example of that. I'm not to say that I don't think that people shouldn't, you know, talk about the stages of grief, but I just think it's helpful for people to know, you know, that there's kind of more context to it than uh, is usually talked about. Anyway, I'm uh, really enjoying the book and conversations, and hopefully I will be on the chat tomorrow evening. All right. Bye. So first off, Kelly, it was great to see you last night. I am so glad you're out of the hospital and well. That is always 
a good thing. I, I think, in my humble opinion, better out than in. Helen's aunt, you make a good case. And I am feeling ambivalent, but I'm still... Here's what it comes down to. <laughs> I don't like how she says it, but I like how she, what she says. At a certain point in life, I started to notice that every woman I met who was close to my age, after that point, we could all say that we had dated someone for a significant period of time who was really bad for us. And it seemed to have become a universal thing. And all of us at one point or another mentioned the fact that we were warned several times by people who cared that we should have really, yeah, just not that. And it always strikes me that that kind of information is best heard from not your parent or caregiver, because you're liable to not listen when those kinds of, of romantic talks come out of an adult who makes you breakfast. I don't know why our brains work this way. You do know psychology. So I am curious to find out if this is a thing, like a named thing, because it's certainly a lifetime of noticing thing on my end. So I get why the ant isn't your jam. <laughs> uh, however, stages of grief stuff, truly interesting. Okay, grieving your own mortality in advance. I get that. I know when my mother-in-law passed, we figured out that I was pregnant pretty much right around the time she passed. And I remember having the completely outrageous, stupid, and fairy tale thinking thought, I will do anything. I will do anything. Just don't let it be true. The hospital had just called and my brain was immediately going to bargaining with deity of choice and trying to figure out and completely illogically if there wasn't some way, something that I could do to make it not true. I really get though, bargaining for your own mortality. Like if I'm good about these things, please don't let me die yet. Now, I get that too. It's interesting. I hadn't really thought about bargaining being kind of a weird uh, piece to put into just grief in general. Huh. I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. Thank you, Kelly. And now we have a voicemail from Sarah. Hey, Heather. It is Sarah. Sarah lives on the internet. Um, I have a few thoughts about the last episode. Um, my first thought is to share a fun game that I have, uh, which has served me well in life and reading, which is that any time in any work of um, fiction or nonfiction, uh, there is a reference to phrenology. I take a drink, um, which just makes the whole idea that phrenology was a science that people actually believed in a little bit more bearable. Um, so when um, Helen had that line about being so good at physiognomy, and then I also had a thought on the, the last line um, where she says, surely it wasn't my fault. And I read that line less as a young lady who is tunnel visioned and can't see her own, like, oh, obviously this isn't my fault. I read it as a young woman who is beleaguered by a man who will not take no for an answer. And I was like, you're right, it is not your fault. She told him in so many ways that she wasn't interested. And this was not even the first time she had 
attempted to show him and tell him she doesn't want him. Um, and she tried really hard to do that in a way that was kind, you know, as much as she could being her, like, very outspoken, headstrong, maybe not the best at tactful, you know, polite behavior way. And then finally she put her foot down, and then he got all upset and left all. And I, I feel like any implication that she was incorrect in doing that uh, feels like it's buying into our cultural expectations that when women say no, they either A, don't mean it, or B, don't know themselves well enough to be able to say no in a way that matters, and it is therefore the man's duty convince her to, to convince her to say yes. So, I, yeah, that was just my thought where, like, the uh, – I, I could not connect with your kind of exasperation at her in being young because I have had that experience as a fully grown adult in my 30s, um, you know, where I have told men, no, I'm not interested and tried to be kind about it, tried to be kind about it, and then they – and then finally was like, no – you, you jerk, leave me alone, and, you know, more unkind things that would have been very unbecoming for a lady um, in in that time to have said, but now, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in the 21st century. Anyway, um, and, and then, you know, had these men get all – oh, I wasn't doing anything wrong. But, like, yeah, dude, you were. I told you no, and you didn't take no for an answer. And it's just kind of part and parcel of this idea of rape culture, and I feel like knowing Anne Bronte, having read this book before, having read her, some of her other stuff, I cannot imagine that this was anything but a how dare this man be so, like, so completely full of himself and so completely ignoring uh, Helen's feelings. Um, and, you know, and, like, he stands in for so many men, right? Like, this is, I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling out because I feel feelings about it. That's all. <laughs> I hope you're doing great. I will talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. So, Sarah, I think you were absolutely correct. Actually, in both... <laughs> both parts. <laughs> I think using phrenology as a drinking game cue is an excellent idea. There's no question that due to the kind of reading that the Brontes did when they were kids in uh, the kind of gothic romance world, that they would draw on the idea of phrenology and, you know, reading someone's physiognomy as a, a skill set that's worthy of pursuit. <laughs> Uh, I think your supposition that perhaps this is foreshadowing is probably a good supposition to have. On the second point, I am so glad you brought this up because it hadn't occurred to me that it wasn't the same thing. While Gilbert's, I think your uh, characterization of Gilbert's It's Not My Fault is absolutely dead on. I think it's interesting that Anne Bronte's putting fundamentally the same words coming out of their mouth when I think you're right, Helen is absolutely correct. And she was amazingly tactful. And there has been a long history of people not listening to women, like I did, to a certain extent. I think the fact that it triggered 
My Gilbert memory is not insignificant, though, because there are lots of different ways for that to have been said, and she chose that one. I don't know. I'm I'm not letting go of her trying to make connections between Helen and Gilbert, like kindred spirit connections, but I'm totally letting go of it being flippant. <laughs> I feel like it's a game of poker with you, Sarah. Like, all right, I will see your deep and penetrating insight and I will raise you semi-platitude. <laughs> okay, so to prepare for today's chapter, we've got that, that word animadversion again. Just a reminder, it means criticism, to be critical of someone in, in our case. Quizzing is used uniquely here, at least uniquely to my ear. Um, it's like teasing or mockery. I think, it's, I think it's more on the unpleasant end, so probably closer to mockery, that I'd never heard that used that way before. So something new every day. There's a reference to a Van Dyke painting. This is a reference to Charles I's court painter, Sir Anthony Van Dyke. Any house at this time that has an actual Van Dyke hanging on the wall, this indicates to us that this person, uh, that this, this, is not, this is not Anne Bronte pimping her friends who are not well-known painters. This is Anne Bronte cluing us in that Wilmot has serious money. It's, this would have cost a ton back then, even. So that's, that's a tip off. And we have several people here who it's, it's not so much that you need to remember who they are as much as you need to remember their relationships with each other, which is what those charts that I've been making for you guys do. You've got Wilmont, who's, who's kind of our, our Rochester stand in. He's not a hugely main character, but he connects a lot of people together. And today we will see Annabella, his niece, Millicent, Annabella's cousin, Grimsby, another friend who is, you might expect, Dickensian in his name. And then, of course, we have Huntingdon, who seems to know everybody. And we have one rather long and fraught conversation right towards the end of the chapter. I'm going to talk to you about some of the words that are used in that after the fact, but just so you know to listen, when you hear a line that we hear often today, um, if somebody is talking about uh, smoking or people doing something that they don't want them to do, but they really care about the person anyway, that line shows up here. It also shows up in Hamilton, by the way. That last chunk, there's a lot of... Uh, language usage that we'll talk about on the flip side, but it's an, it's an important conversation to pay attention to. I think that's everything before we dive in, and I will explain the FOMO generator after we listen as well. All right, here we go. Chapter 17 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, read for us by Mia Daguerre. Chapter 17. Further Warnings The next day I accompanied my uncle and aunt to a dinner party at Mr Wilmot's. He had two ladies staying with him, his niece Annabella 
a fine dashing girl, or rather a young woman, of some five and twenty, too great a flirt to be married according to her own assertion, but greatly admired by the gentleman, who universally pronounced her a splendid woman, and her gentle cousin Millicent Hargrave, who had taken a violent fancy to me, mistaking me for something vastly better than I was, and I in return was very fond of her. I should entirely exclude poor Millicent in my general animadversions against the ladies of my acquaintance, but it was not on her account or her cousins that I have mentioned the party. It was for the sake of another of Mr. Wilmot's guests, to wit, Mr. Huntingdon. I have good reason to remember his presence there, for this was the last time I saw him. He did not sit near me at dinner, for it was his fate to hand in a capricious old dowager, and mine to be handed in by Mr. Grimsby, a friend of his, but a man I very greatly disliked. He was a sinister cast in his countenance, and a mixture of lurking ferocity and fulsome insincerity in his demeanour that I could not away with. What a tiresome custom that is, by the by, one among the many sources of factitious annoyance of this ultra-civilised life. If the gentlemen must lead the ladies into the dining-room, why cannot they take those they like best? I'm not sure, however, that Mr Huntington would have taken me if he had been at liberty to make his own selection. It is quite possible he might have chosen Miss Wilmot, for she seemed bent upon engrossing his attention to herself, and he seemed nothing loath to pay homage she demanded. I thought so, at least, when I saw how they talked and laughed, and glanced across the table to the neglected and evident umbrage of the respected neighbours, and afterwards, as the gentleman joined us in the drawing-room, when she, immediately upon his entrance, loudly called upon him to be the arbiter of a dispute between herself and another lady, and he answered the summons with alacrity, and decided the question without a moment's hesitation in her favour, though to my thinking she was obviously in the wrong, and then stood chatting familiarly with her and a group of other ladies, while I sat with Millicent Hargrave at the opposite end of the room, looking over the latter's drawings, and aiding her with my critical observations and advice at her particular desire. But in spite of my efforts to remain composed, my attention wandered from the drawings to the merry group, and against my better judgment my wrath rose, and doubtless my countenance lowered, for Millicent, observing that I must be tired of her daubs and scratches, begged I would join the company now, and defer the examination of the remainder to another opportunity. But while I was assuring her that I had no wish to join them, and was not tired, Mr Huntington himself came up to the little round table at which we sat. "'Are these yours?' he said carelessly, taking up one of the drawings. "'No, they are Miss Hargrave's. Oh, well, let's have a look at them.' And regardless of Miss Hargrave's protestations that they were not worth looking at, he drew a chair to my side, and receiving the drawings, one by one from my hand, successively scanned them over, and threw them on the table, but said not a word about them, though he was talking all the time. I don't know what Millicent Hargrave thought of such conduct, but I found his conversation extremely interesting. Though as I afterwards discovered when I came to analyse it, it was chiefly confined to quizzing the different members of the company present, and albeit he made some clever remarks and some excessively droll ones, I do not think the whole would appear anything very particular if written here without the advantageous aids of look and tone and gesture, and that ineffable but indefinite charm, which cast a halo over all he did and said, and which would have made it a delight to look in his face and hear the music of his voice, if he had been talking positive nonsense, and which, moreover, made me feel so bitter against my aunt, 
when she put a stop to this enjoyment by coming composedly forward under pretense of wishing to see the drawings that she cared and knew nothing about, and while making believe to examine them, addressing herself to Mr Huntingdon with one of her coldest and most repellent aspects, and beginning a series of the most commonplace and formidably formal questions and observations, on purpose to wrest his attention from me, on purpose to vex me as I thought, and having now looked through the portfolio, I left them to their tete-a-tete, and seated myself on a sofa quite apart from the company, never thinking how strange such conduct would appear, but merely to indulge at first the vexation of the moment, and subsequently to enjoy my private thoughts. But I was not left long alone, for Mr Wilmot, of all men the least welcome, took advantage of my isolated position to come and plant himself beside me. I had flattered myself that I had so effectually repulsed his advances on all former occasions that I had nothing more to apprehend from his unfortunate predilection. But it seems I was mistaken. So great was his confidence, either in his wealth or his remaining powers of attraction, and so firm his convictions of feminine weakness, that he thought himself warranted to return to the siege, which he did with renovated ardour, enkindled by the quality of wine he had drunk, a circumstance that rendered him infinitely the more disgusting. But greatly as I abhorred him at that moment, I did not like to treat him with rudeness, as I was now his guest, and had just been enjoying his hospitality, and I was no hand at polite but determined rejection. Nor would it have greatly availed me if I had, for he was too coarse-minded to take any repulse that was not as plain and positive as his own effrontery. The consequence was that he waxed more fulsomely tender and more repulsively warm, and I was driven to the very verge of desperation, and about to say I know not what, when I felt my hand, that hung over the arm of the sofa, suddenly taken by another, and gently but fervently pressed. Instinctively I guessed who it was, and on looking up, was less surprised than delighted to see Mr Huntington smiling upon me. It was like turning from some purgatorial fiend to an angel of light, come to announce that the season of torment was past. Helen, said he, he frequently called me Helen, and I never resented the freedom. I want you to look at this picture. Mr Wilmot will excuse you a moment, I'm sure. I rose with alacrity. He drew my arm within his and led me across the room to a splendid painting of Van Dyck's that I had noticed before, but not sufficiently examined. After a moment of silent contemplation, I was beginning to comment on its beauties and peculiarities, when, playfully pressing the hand he still retained within his arm, he interrupted me with, Never mind the picture, it was not for that I brought you here, it was to get you away from that scoundrelly old profligate yonder. He was looking as if he would like to challenge me for the affront. I'm very much obliged to you, said I. This is twice you have delivered me from such unpleasant companionship. Don't be too thankful, he answered. It's not all kindness to you. It's partly from a feeling of spite to your tormentors that makes me delighted to do the old fellows a bad turn, though I don't think that I have any great reason to dread them as rivals. Have I, Helen? You know I detest them both. And me? I have no reason to detest you. But what are your sentiments towards me, Helen? Speak, how do you regard me? And again he pressed my hand. But I feared there was more conscious power than tenderness in his demeanour, and I felt he had no right to exhort a confession of attachment from me when he has made no correspondent avowal himself, and knew not what to answer. At last I said, 
How do you regard me? Sweet angel, I adore you. I... Helen, I want you a moment, said the distinct low voice of my aunt close beside us, and I left him muttering maledictions against his evil angel. Well, aunt, what is it? What do you want? I said, following her to the embrasure of the window. I want you to join the company when you are fit to be seen, returned she severely regarding me. But please to stay here a little till that shocking colour is somewhat abated and your eyes have recovered something of their natural expression. I should be ashamed for anyone to see you in your present state. Of course, such a remark had no effect in reducing the shocking colour. On the contrary, I felt my face glow with redoubled fires kindled by a complication of emotions, of which indignant swelling anger was the chief. I offered no reply, however, but pushed aside the curtain and looked into the night, or rather into the lamplit square. Was Mr Huntington proposing to you, Helen? inquired my too watchful relative. No. What was he saying, then? I heard something very like it. I don't know what he would have said if you hadn't interrupted him. And would you have accepted him, Helen, if he proposed? Of course not, not without consulting Uncle and you. Oh, I'm glad, my dear, you have so much prudence left. Well now, she added after a moment's pause, you have made yourself conspicuous enough for one evening. The ladies are directing inquiring glances towards us at this moment, I see. I shall join them. Do you come too, when you are sufficiently composed to appear as usual? I am so now. Speak gently then and don't look so malicious, said my calm but provoking aunt. We shall return home shortly and then, she added with some solemn significance, I have much to say to you. So I went home, prepared for a formidable lecture. Little was said by either party in the carriage during our short transit homewards. But when I had entered my room and thrown myself into an easy chair to reflect on the events of the day... My aunt followed me thither, and having dismissed Rachel, who was carefully stowing away my ornaments, closed the door, and placing a chair beside me, or rather at right angles with me, sat down. With due deference, I offered her my more commodious seat. She declined it, and thus opened the conference. Do you remember, Helen, our conversation, the night but one before we left Stanningley? Yes, aunt. And do you remember how I warned you against letting your heart be stolen from you, by those unworthy of its possession, and fixing your affections when the approbation did not go before, and where reason and judgment withheld their sanction. Yes, but my reason, pardon me, do you remember assuring me that there was no occasion for uneasiness on your account? You should never be tempted to marry a man who was deficient in sense or principle, however handsome or charming in other respects he might be. For you could not love him. You should hate, despise, pity, anything but love him. Were those not your words? Yes, but... And did you not say that your affection must be founded on approbation, and that unless you could approve and honour and respect, you could not love? Yes, but I do approve and honour and respect. How so, my dear? Is Mr Huntington a good man? He's a much better man than you think him. That is nothing to the purpose. Is he a good man? Yes, in some respects. He has a good disposition. Is he a man of principle? Perhaps not exactly, but it's only for want of thought. If he had someone to advise him and remind him of what's right, he would soon learn, you think. But you yourself would willingly undertake to be his teacher. But my dear, he is, I believe, a full ten years older than you. 
How is it that you're so beforehand in moral acquirements? Thanks to you, Aunt. I've been well brought up and had good examples always before me, which he most likely has not. And besides, he's of sanguine temperament and a gay, thoughtless temper, and I'm naturally inclined to reflection. Well, now, you've made him out to be deficient in both sense and principle by your own confession. Then my sense and principle are at his service. That sounds presumptuous, Helen. Do you think you have enough for both, and do you imagine that your merry, thoughtless profligate would allow himself to be guided by a young girl like you? No, I should not wish to guide him, but I think I might have some influence sufficient to save him from some errors, and I should think my life well spent in the effort to preserve so noble a nature from destruction. He always listens attentively now when I speak seriously to him, and I often venture to reprove his random way of talking. And sometimes he says that if he had me always by his side, he should never do or say a wicked thing. And that a little daily talk with me would make him quite a saint. It may be partly jest and partly flattery, but still... But still you think it may be truth? If I do think there's any mixture of truth in it, it's not from confidence in my own powers, but in his natural goodness. And you have no right to call him profligate, aunt. He's nothing of the kind. Who told you so, my dear? What was that story about his intrigue with a married lady? Lady who was it? Miss Wilmot herself was telling you the other day. It was false, false, I cried. I don't believe a word of it. You think then that he's a virtuous, well-conducted young man? I know nothing positive respecting his character. I only know that I've heard nothing definite against it. Nothing that can be proved, at least. Until people can prove their slanderous accusations, I will not believe them. And I know this, that if he has committed errors, they are only such as are common to youth, and such as nobody thinks anything about. For I see everybody likes him, and all the mamas smile upon him and their daughters, and Miss Wilmot herself are only too glad to attract his attention. Helen, the world may look upon such offences as venial, a few unprincipled mothers may be anxious to catch a young man of fortune without reference to his character, and thoughtless girls may be glad to win the smiles of so handsome a gentleman, without seeking to penetrate beyond the surface. But you, I trusted, were better informed than to see with their eyes and judge with their perverted judgment. I did not think you would call these venial errors. Nor do I, aunt. But if I hate the sins, I love the sinner would do much for his salvation, even supposing your suspicions to be mainly true, which I do not and will not believe. Well, my dear, ask your uncle what sort of company he keeps, and if he's not banded with a set of loose, profligate young men who he calls his friends, his jolly companions, and whose chief delight is to wallow in vice and vie with each other who can run fastest and furthest down the headlong road to the place prepared for the devil and his angels then I will save him from them. Oh, Helen, Helen, you know little of the misery of un uniting your fortunes to such a man. I have such confidence in him, aunt, notwithstanding all you say, that I would willingly risk my happiness for the chance of securing his. I will leave better men to those who consider their own advantage. If he has done amiss, I shall consider my life well spent in saving him from the consequences of his earlier errors, and striving to recall him to the path of virtue. God grant me success. Here the conversation ended, 
for at this juncture my uncle's voice was heard from his chamber, loudly calling upon my aunt to come to bed. He was in a bad humour that night, for his gout was worse, and had been gradually increasing upon him ever since we came into town, and my aunt took advantage of the circumstance next morning to persuade him to return to the country immediately, without waiting for the close of the season. His physician supported and enforced the arguments, and contrary to her usual habits, she so hurried the preparations for removal, as much for my sake as my uncle's, I think, that in a very few days we departed, and I saw no more of Mr Huntington. My aunt flatters herself that I shall soon forget him. Perhaps she thinks I've forgotten him already, for I never mention his name, and she may continue to think so, till we meet again, if ever that should be. I wonder if it will. Okay, before we get into the last thrashing that the aunt gave to Helen, and that starts with the hate the sin, love the sinner, which is part of the, the Hamilton soundtrack. Ah, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Burr. Sir. Did you hear the news about good old General Mercer? No. You know Claremont Street? Yeah. They renamed it after him. The Mercer Legacy is secure. Sure. And all he had to do was die. Yeah, that's a lot less work. We ought to give it a try. <laughs> now how you gonna get your debt plan through? I guess I'm gonna finally have to listen to you. Really? Talk less. Smile more. <laughs> do whatever it takes to get my plan on the Congress floor. And Madison and Jefferson are merciless. Well, hate the sin, love the sinner. Hamilton. I'm sorry, Burr, I gotta go. But decisions are happening over dinner. So in this chapter, we have a lot more information coming to us from Huntington. And I didn't want to foreshadow <laughs> uh, too much of what goes on in this chapter before you listened. I wanted you listening with fresh ears to Huntington's behavior. And I'm actually going to take a step back. I I am afraid if I if I start talking about how he's behaving, I'm going to wind up giving something away. And I'm not in the mood to do that to you. There's there's a lot of stuff going on in here. Feel free to call in. 206-350-1642 or send an email heather at craftlet.com to let me know your thoughts on Huntington's behavior. And guys, this means you too. Please. Your input here is really valuable. I call this episode FOMO generator because the the one thing I will say about Huntington is I have known people like this in my life who are often really fun friends. But if you date them, you get yourself into trouble. But part of the reason that they have so many good friends is because they're a FOMO generator. FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. The way that they tell stories about things they did or stuff they got to see or places they got to go makes you feel it's not just inadequate. It's you're such a loser for not having been there. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that this is something that these people do on purpose. It's just instead of 
telling a story about something cool that you got to do or see being inclusive, like I'm sharing this with you so you can all take this story on as your own and go enjoy being able to share the story. It's an exclusive framing. It's, I'm so sorry that you weren't able to, you know, go over to that side of the room and laugh with us like everybody else was doing. I don't know what your problem is. Oh my God. There is something uh, that's shifted in that conversation. And it, it took me a long time to kind of pinpoint a modern framework, a modern reference for some of Huntington's behavior. And that was, that was the closest I could come to at least something that I'd experienced in life and, and seen. I'm assuming other people have had experiences with people like that too. The other thing that goes on in this chapter towards the end is the conversation, now big conversation too, with Helen's aunt. And she's getting more desperate. And the words she is using are rather specific. Perverted judgment. I don't think it's an accident that the word perverted can be used in a sexual context, as it is most usually used in our modern world. But also, a thing can be perverted without it being sexualized. So it can be perverted in a, it can be warped, it can be twisted, it can be unhealthy. It doesn't have to have the sexual connotation. I think both are valid and both are meant in this. Because we've seen in pages earlier, uh, Helen blushing, she is definitely responding romantically to this guy. And by romantically, I'm using a small r and what I really mean is sexually. She's totally hot on Huntington. And we, we get that slowly and gradually, but also her behavior says it, at least to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who's reading it that way. Totally possible. But the things that she is willing to overlook tend to indicate to me that she is firing on several specific cylinders. And... Yeah, and that's one of them. I think, uh, I think this aunt has her work cut out for her. So you've got the the perverted judgment, and then you've got hate the sin, love the sinner, and I just about dropped my glass of iced tea when I was first listening to the book the first time through, because that to me was a modern phrase, a really modern phrase, a like circa nineteen eighty four phrase. Uh, specifically, I heard it being used in regards to AIDS and people who were struggling with HIV, trying to survive HIV. And then here it is in Anne Bronte. I love that. Profligate. His, his friends are profligate. They are profligate young men. They are reckless and extravagant and recklessly extravagant. They spend money like it does, in fact, grow on trees. Venial. You have probably heard this before, but just in case, a venial sin, there are two different kinds of sins. Catholic friends, correct me if I'm wrong. There are two different kinds of sins, venial and mortal. Mortal sins are the ones that are bad enough to condemn your soul. Venial sins are forgivable. They won't deny your soul access to divine grace. Here, the aunt is really using venial as a stand-in for the word trivial. I did not think you would call these venial errors. I didn't think you'd call these things trivial errors, these flaws in Huntingdon. 
it is not accidental that the word venial is popping up and it has a religious context in which it's used. There's a whole lot of religion happening here and it gets very specific when Helen makes the Byronic hero error of, it's okay, I know I can reform him, just let me save him and change him. Helen's response to her aunt earlier, when she says, is he, he has a good disposition, well, is he a man of principle? Perhaps not, comma, exactly, semicolon. But it is only for want of thought, colon. If he had someone to advise him, comma, and remind him of what is right, M dash. She doesn't finish the sentence. It's an interesting chunk of punctuation, for one thing. It's also an interesting example of someone who is talking themselves into making an argument that they know better than to make. And this is this is our we we will have many Byronic hero alerts. Lots of stuff that Huntingdon is doing in this chapter, uh, which I'm hoping you will comment on as well, triggered all of my Byronic hero warnings from even just crossing the line and and going into the, but enough about me, let's talk about me. What do you think of me? Moment. All all the way into some of the other things that he did. The pain, (laughs) the, the pain and the creepy crawly skin flesh thing that happened to me in this chapter I know comes straight out of being a high school teacher and having had to talk to more than one girl who was dating a 24-year-old guy and saying, look, I know it's incredibly flattering that this guy wants to date you, but I want you to take a step back. Try, try to take a step back and think he is 10 years older than me. Why can't he find a girl to date who's his own age? Because if you keep going the way you're going, by the time you're 24, you're going to be butt-kickingly awesome and really strong and really smart. Why would a woman of 24 like that not be even more attractive to him? What's going on with him? And several times those conversations worked and helped and thank God. Uh, But also as a parent, watching the aunt try so hard to guide Helen and blow it at every turn, it tells us a couple different things. One, the aunt really does care. Two, the uncle doesn't really get it. And three, Helen is really stubborn, really, really stubborn and smart, but not when it comes to long-term planning for her heart. But again, that's totally typical. That's not unnatural. That's not out of the range of normal. It is what it is. So, ah, so they are leaving London. They are leaving the the scene, uh, the season and the Hepcat scene and, and heading back home, which we know, and I'm putting this kind of in air quotes, we know that it's north. We know that we're heading towards Yorkshire, and that's where we leave off. So, next week, next week we'll pick up with another Helen chapter, because there's more of this diary for Gilbert to be reading and offering to us so that we can learn also. All right, don't forget to write in with your thoughts on Huntingdon, 206-350-1642, or 
heather at craftlit.com and I'll uh, share what you have to say. All right. Have a great week. Enjoy Hamilton. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>